I'm Sarah Rinlaub, and I have the chance to uh, introduce a Michelle today, a different Michelle than we thought we were introducing, but I'm going to introduce Michelle Easton, who is the uh, president of the, um, the, Claire, the great Claire Boothloose Institute. And what I want to start off with is you've got, you've got your program on the tables, and you can read all the incredible things Michelle has done. But I want to just say to all of you, as females, we have a civilizational responsibility to try to have a family. And I just want all of you to know that Michelle has, has accepted that responsibility very well. And she is also a very normal person in addition to all these marvelous things that she's done. So Michelle has been married to Ron for over 40 years. She's got three grown boys and she's got three grandchildren, the first two of whom were twins. So she's uh, enjoying her grandchildren and loving her life and doing all these miraculous things that she's done. So let me just say, Michelle has, been, had, has had quite the uh, experience as a woman who has done everything. So she started off at Briarcliff College, and then she came down to DC. She met Ron. They started having kids. She went to night school, got a law degree. When Reagan came to town, he got her into his administration in the education department, where she always had her first love in education. And then she uh, stayed through the entire eight years of Reagan, and then the next four years with, um, with George H.W. Uh, Bush. And then after that, she was working with the uh, Governor Allen in the Education Department again in the state of Virginia. So she's done all these miraculous things. <clears throat> but the most important was she made a decision about the women of the country, the young women of the country. And as a result, she started the Luce Institute, which has just done a miraculous job of helping women on campuses and women like the women of Washington who just need some support. You know, you need to know that you have some other people that, that believe in the fundamental foundations of the United States. So the, the Luce Institute has, for the, now for over 20, almost 26 years now, um, has helped so many people, inspired so many people. Another generation has been inspired. And it just shows you what one woman can do when she sets her mind to it. Let's welcome Michelle Easton. <laughs> what a nice introduction, Sarah. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for being here. Um, I, uh, I founded the Institute more than 25 years ago. And I chose Mrs. Luce's name because she was such an extraordinary trailblazing woman who modeled leadership for women both then and now. She was a pioneer in her time who served in a variety of leadership roles, many of which were first for women, and some are still pretty rare for women today. Now we passed around, it's on your table, a little article here. It's from Investor Business Daily. It's very old, as you can see. Uh, 2000, but it's one of my favorite ones about Mrs. Luce because it's titled, Dedication to Hard Work Got Her to the Top. And my long experience working, and even at home, has been that it's very rarely luck that gets you what you want. Sometimes, sometimes it does. But rather, it's hard work, hard work on your family, on your job, on the things that matter to you that will bring you the success in life that you would like. And that's Mrs. Luce. Now let me tell you about this extraordinary woman who lived during the time, for most of you, of your great-great-grandmothers, maybe you're even your great-great-grandmothers, some, some of the younger ones here. I have to remember to click this. Okay. All right, do I have to point at it? All right, tech guys. I'm, I'm pushing the green here. Oh, we got it. Good. Okay. Claire Boothloose, she was born in 1903. Her parents separated when she was very young, so she was raised by a sometimes financially, uh, financially struggling mother when she was, when she was young. Um, and her father was a, had been an itinerant musician. They moved around quite a lot. Um, and it's important to note that she became an incredible writer. 
really a literary star. Many teachers say it's impossible to be a great writer without also being a great reader. Margie Ross, you'll like this here, Regnery Publishing. Knowledge building on knowledge forges the critical thinking skills that produce insight and understanding. Claire was a voracious reader as a child, and she was largely self-educated, as I mentioned earlier, for you homeschoolers. You may be surprised to learn that she really only had four years of formal schooling. Um, she was two years at a Catholic school uh, at age 12, and then she went to a school called the Castle School, um, and she graduated first in her class in 1919 at the age of 16. Uh, that was in Tarrytown, New York. It was, um, how shall we say, sort of a la-di-da prep school. Her mother had remarried a prosperous doctor uh, at a certain point in Claire's uh, childhood, um, and it gave her some wonderful, uh, some wonderful opportunities. But it was during her years at the Castle School she began writing plays and poetry, and she became editor of the school paper. I know some of you have uh, edited your school paper. A classmate at the Castle School later said of her, quote, she was always interested in reading and learning about art or French and English history, driving herself through some inner compulsion to find out the why of everything. While she soaked in the tub, her classmate said, she'd have Plato propped up the taps in front of her. I've wondered, does anybody still read in the tub? <laughs> well, she did. Her early life circumstances only motivated her to succeed, and her innate why of everything became the force that empowered her to achieve so much of what she did. And one biographer wrote, by the time she was 16, she knew what she wanted, and her ambitions were as big as her dreams. Now remember this. This was her dream to be fluent in four languages, to marry a publisher, and write something that would be remembered. And she would achieve all of those goals. It's important for us to keep in mind the time period in which Claire Boothloose lived. She was 13 years old when the first woman served in the US Congress. She was 16 years old before women had the right to vote nationally. There were a couple of states that gave women the right to vote earlier in state elections. She lived through both World Wars and the Great Depression. She was in the prime of her career when the Second World War was being fought, and she was a congresswoman at a time when only 20 other women were serving in Congress, 3.7%. 3 she was the first American woman to hold a major US ambassadorial post. And one of my favorite stories about Claire is how she landed her first job at Vanity Fair. Uh, it was Condé Nast magazines. Vogue and Vanity Fair. She just finished a difficult marriage. Her first husband, her mother had selected him. It was, that was the era. And he was extraordinarily wealthy, but he was an alcoholic. Uh, he was a big socialite. But she was divorced. She was discontented. She felt idle. She felt ready for a career. So one night, she found herself at a dinner party with a mag magazine magnet uh, publisher, Condé Nast, N-A-S-T. And having more gumption than many of us could ever imagine, she asked him for a job at one of his magazines. Now here he is. He was taken aback, Mr. Nast. He told Claire, you come and see me in three weeks, um, and erroneously assumed she'd lose whatever one had struck her and forget all about it. His exact words, Claire remembered. He, she said to him, my dear girl, I've had many like you come and ask for a job, but you won't stick at it. You won't have any capacity for work. Well, Claire was not one to forget. Three weeks later, she turned up at the publisher's office, only to find that Mr. Nast was in Europe for three weeks. But she saw this empty desk over in the corner, and she asked about it. And they said, oh, that was um, occupied by a caption writer who left uh, the job to get married. So she took off her coat, she sat down at the desk, and made herself at home, and everybody thought she'd been hired. Within three weeks, she was on the payroll and working dutifully and skillfully as a caption writer. Initially, it was for Vogue magazine. And after about three months, she successfully made a, uh, successfully made a transition to Vanity Fair, which was uh, a magazine she was more interested in, more literary. It wasn't long before Claire was authoring articles for the magazine and was offered the position of assistant editor. She was a very fine writer, fine thinker. Observers at the time took notice of the growing maturity of her articles. The early ones were mostly satirical and funny, 
but as time passed, they said her articles became more serious and philosophical and showed human understanding, uh, very well done. In 1933, after years of outstanding work, Claire was appointed the managing editor of Vanity Fair. In the midst of the Great Depression, the magazine's circulation was trending down, and publisher Condé Nast considered overhauling the magazine and asked his staff for ideas. So she submitted an idea, a proposal to reshape it into a photojournalism magazine, which she titled Changing Vanity Fair into a picture magazine called Life. Some of you are old enough to remember what Life magazine was. And Condé Nast did not pursue the idea, but another publisher who would become Claire's husband would do so. Magazines then, even women's magazines, were male dominating. So as managing editor of Vanity Fair, Claire was one of the first females to serve in such a position for a major publication. And this is especially amazing if you consider that Time Magazine did not have a female managing editor until 2013, a full 80 years after Claire broke that glass ceiling, if you want to call it that, at Vanity Fair. She was truly ahead of her time. During this time, Claire also became an established playwright. She wrote over 10 plays, and her most famous play, The Women, opened on Broadway December 26, 1936 and enjoyed a Broadway run of almost 700 performances. The Women was also made into a Hollywood movie twice. The 1939 movie, you can see that one on the right, starred Norma Shear, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell, and it was second only to Gone with the Wind in box office receipts in 1939. The 2008 version starred Meg Ryan, Eva Mendez, Annette Bening, Jada Pinkett Smith, and Bette Midler. Personally, I like the old one better, but you, sh you should see them both. Um, it's such a distinct play, especially for its time, because not only was it written by a woman, but it featured an all-female cast, not one man, and yet it's all about men. <laughs> While Claire wrote many things during her lifetime, the women would assuredly satisfy her teenage aspiration to write something that would be remembered. The play has been performed on stages around the globe almost continuously since 1936. And this was just a little ad I found uh, the last time I gave this speech. Uh, it was just at the Spotlighter Theater. It's a theater in Baltimore. You, you put it in, the women, and you'll find some place in America where that play is still being performed. Come to the Stable was another of her plays. It was also made into a movie. It's a great movie. It was a comedy starring Oscar-winning Loretta Young and Celeste Holm as two nuns on a quest to build an abbey. The movie received uh, Academy Award nominations as well. And if you haven't seen it and want to see a good old-fashioned movie where the religious figures are good and virtuous, unlike the way religious figures are too often portrayed in most modern movies, I would recommend you rent this film. It was also while she was at Vanity Fair that Claire met the man who had become her husband, her second husband, magazine publisher Henry Luce. They hit it off from the very first night they met, and one biographer describing their first meeting this way. Luce, Henry, joined Booth for a long, wide-ranging conversation. He could be overbearing, even rude, that's for sure. But he was also an intense and fascinating conversationalist. When the party was over, they were still talking. As they walked down to the empty lobby of the hotel to say goodbye, Henry Luce turned to her and said, she was the kind of woman he had been looking for and that he planned to marry her. First meeting. And they were married on November 23, 1935. And almost one year to the date later, on November 19, 1936, a picture magazine called Life was launched by Henry Luce. She never got credit for that. It was her idea. <laughs> Claire's tenure at Vanity Fair and her why of everything curiosity of the world made her transition to a war journalist virtually ine inevitable. And the transition was something of a necessity because during that time, travelers could only get State Department permission to travel to Europe if they were journalists. Over several years leading up to and during World War II, she served as a foreign correspondent for Life magazine in Europe and in China. To get the news, she experienced bombing raids and endured the dangers and discomforts typical of war correspondents. She also endured the censorship 
that all war correspondents had to live under. In Trinidad, she faced house arrest when British officials found her draft life article about poor military preparations a little bit too close for comfort, for allied comfort. And yet her astute observations in this article were reportedly given to Winston Churchill, who studied them and revamped his policies based on it. She helped communicate to civilians around the world what conditions were like abroad and the terrors of Nazism. Her observations drove her to publish her first nonfiction book called Europe in the Spring in 1940. Her purpose in writing the book was to convince her fellow Americans of the dangers of isolationism. Some things never change, do they? <laughs> These issues, they come up over and over. But hers was a vivid and anecdotal account of what she observed during her four-month trip in Europe in preparing for war. And the book was immensely popular. It reached number two on the New York Times bestseller list and was reprinted eight times. It was also persuasive, and it won the approval of the intellectuals of the era. Remember, this was a very different era for women, um, and you had to prove yourself over and over and over again. The jacket of the book included endorsement by the nationally respected journalist of the time, Walter Lippmann, confirming that Claire's account was devastatingly and absolutely truthful. Europe wasn't the only continent embroiled in the battle. Claire and her husband Henry were also drawn to the Pacific Rim in their quest to gather information about Japan and China for the pages of Life magazine. Claire interviewed and wrote a profile of General Douglas MacArthur by sheer coincidence the MacArthur profile was the cover story of Life, the magazine, December 8, 1941, the day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. She went on to conduct interviews of such high-profile people as General Alexa Harold Alexander, commander of the British troops, India's Prime Minister Nehru, General Stilwell, commander of American troops in China, Burma, and India, and China's leader, Chiang Kai-shek. In 1942 alone, Mrs. Luce flew 75,000 miles to cover the various fronts and actors involved, and most of it was aboard commercial aircraft, although she was occasionally given the opportunity to fly in military aircraft. There you go, she's suiting up. She wasn't what some might call a helicopter <laughs> journalist like today, you know, with our 24-7 news, you land in a spot, you get a quick story, then you leave. She spent the time to listen to the soldiers on the ground. She spent literally months in Europe, from the generals to the jeep drivers, to try to understand their situation. And she loved, she loved the men. She loved the soldiers. She was doing all this while many women were still restricted from different walks of life and often discouraged from pursuing their dreams. In 1942, she was elected her first term in Congress serving as the representative for the 4th District of Connecticut, which is a, a liberal Democrat district. But she ran her campaign based on one major promise, to win the world war, World War II, to win it by prosecuting it effectively and to have a durable peace and post-war security. And Claire knew a lot more about the war and its effects than many of her fellow congressmen, because she'd been to the battlefronts and she'd spent time listening to the soldiers and the generals on the ground. She took that knowledge from her, uh, from her experience to Congress and became the first female ever appointed to the House Military Affairs Committee. In 1944, Claire's only child, Anne, died in a tragic car incident as Anne and a classmate were driving back to Stanford University they had just visited with uh, Mrs. Luce in San Francisco, and the tragedy, tra tragedy devastated her and caused her to undertake a spiritual journey that resulted in her conversion to Catholicism in 1946 under the tutelage of Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen. Monsignor Sheen would later say of Claire that she used sorites, the Greek use of logic in extended argument, better than any other person I have ever met. In the spring of 1947, Claire wrote about her conversion experience in startlingly personal detail in a series of articles in McCall's magazine. You know, for the youngsters here, back before the internet and cable news, magazines were the key way that people communicated ideas and news uh, to the American people. McCall's was widely read. My mother had it. We always had it in the house. Um, and Mrs. Luce would go on to write and edit articles and books promoting the Catholic Church and its causes for the rest of her life. 
For her second nonfiction work, it was called Saints for Now, Claire persuaded 20 eminent authors to contribute short essays talking about their favorite saint, and she edited and compiled them. Now, by now, Nazism and fascism had been defeated, but the world was still grappling with communism. I know you students have read about it. I mean, it was, it was all-consuming for many of us. We worried about it every single day. She reacted to an article in the 1949 Atlantic Monthly that presented the life of man as meaningless and hollow at the center. In her rebuttal, she, she decided to research. She took months, and it took her weeks to actually write it. And when she finished, it was 16,000 words, and the manuscript was too long for an article, but too short for a book. In it, she argued that the struggle shaking man in the modern world was one of two irreconcilable worldviews, which she presented in terms of God-fearing power of democracy, God-hating power of communism. And the Regnery Company, whose current president, Margie Ross, is a member of our board of directors, and you've heard from her already. You're going to hear, hear from her later. They decided to publish it for her. This is the title. It was called The Twilight of God, and they had a series of pamphlets back then called Human Affairs Pamphlets, and you, you can still find it on the Internet. It's very, very good. Then in 1953, Claire did something no woman had ever done before. She became the first female ambassador to a major country, Italy. At the time, Italy was teetering on the brink between communism and democracy and engaged in a bitter land dispute with Yugoslavia. Claire Booth Luce was just the woman to help Italy out, even if it was truly going where no woman had gone before. Claire was not just handed the ambassadorship. She had to earn it, much like the gumption she displayed to Condé Nast that landed her eventually the job that she won at Vanity Fair, she displayed a similar gumption when she, was, when she told newly elected President Eisenhower exactly what she wanted. She had done 100 campaign appearances for him. She was a, a very gifted speaker as well. And he said, well, what do you want? Well, she said, I want to be US ambassador to Italy. She always came prepared to argue for what she wanted. And she printed, presented three reasons to President Eisenhower to prove that she was not only the right woman for the job, but more importantly, the right person. She said, number one, she was a known Catholic. He would gratify the millions of Catholics who had voted for him. Number two, her appointment would save him from having to send another of her faith to the Vatican. She said, look, I'm a two-for-one ambassador, Italy and the Vatican. And number three, she said every female in the electorate would be pleased that a woman had finally gotten a number one diplomatic post. Ever the great persuader, Claire got herself the job of a lifetime. And once she had the job, she set out to truly make a difference in Italy. While she had the support of the Italian government, some of the Italian newspapers were not as kind to the incoming ambassador. One biographer wrote, they treated the prospect of a female envoy with sarcasm, ribaldry, or outright scorn. A cartoon in the weekly monarchist publication, Candido, showed the US embassy flag in Rome fringed with negligee lace. And Claire became the butt of such street vulgarisms as, the ambassador doesn't tote a fountain pen, the last noun in Italian being a double entendre for penis. One of the major assignments of her tenure in Italy was to resolve the long-simmering crisis between Italy and Yugoslavia over the port of Trieste. Claire's role in resolving the Trieste crisis was not widely known beyond high-ranking diplomatic circles at the time, but her insight guidance uh, were just critical to to ending this, her back channel uh, reaching out to President Eisenhower as well, and made possible the final Trieste Agreement between Italy and Yugoslavia in 1954. The agreement endeared her and the United States to the Italian people and fully established her credentials within the diplomatic corps. You see, she had to keep establishing her credentials. And you can see that city up there, Trieste, and you have Yugoslavia on the one side and Italy on the other, and they were fighting about who controlled it. They worked out something of a compromise. But while in Italy, Claire faced something much more dangerous than angry, scornful Italians. She began to 
feel fatigue. She lost feeling in her feet, and her teeth started to come loose, and, and her hair was falling out, and blood tests revealed that she was suffering from arsenic poisoning. As Claire was an outspoken uh, foe of communism, some immediately assumed it was foul play by her communist foes, and the CIA was called in to investigate, and what they discovered will surprise you. The source of the poison that was slowly killing Mrs. Luce was not a communist regime, but the very bedroom she sought sanctuary in. The ambassador's residence was a beautiful, stately old Italian home, and the ceilings were ornately painted. Over there on the right, you see that. Above her bed were clusters of beautifully painted roses, which were gorgeous to the naked eye, but secretly deadly because the paint contained arsenic of lead. And it so happened that a new laundry room had been installed above her bedroom. And when the washing machines were shaking, it, it would cause the dust, uh, the poison dust, to fall in her morning coffee, on her bed, and on surfaces throughout the room. The ceiling was quietly renovated, and the story of the poisoning was treated as a state secret for some time to avoid embarrassing uh, the Italian government. But when Claire left Italy, and you could see how very thin she was, uh, she, she was quite ill, uh, primarily because of her health issues, she left behind in Italy firmly on the road to democratic freedom. And one of Italy's oldest newspapers wrote, perhaps never in the whole of history has a great nation owed so much to so small, fragile, and gentle a woman. In her post-ambassadorial life, it was fascinating, too. In 1959, Castro led a revolution in Cuba, and Claire and Henry strongly uh, opposed Castro. They even went so far as to help start anti-Castro groups. And she was not afraid to voice her objections to communism. And she participated, whenever asked, in uh, national debates. This was a nationally broadcast radio debate where she proudly stated, our capitalist economy has many faults. I'm the first to acknowledge them. But the fact that, communism, that capitalism has faults does not prove that communism is virtuous, nor does it prove that communism is a cure, except as a guillotine might be called a cure for a case of dandruff. <laughs> she closed her argument with this. My opponent, and I'm not sure which of these opponents she's talking about, is a self-deluded man. She always said this all very politely and graciously, but her, she was good. She said, <laughs> He's fighting against our system of Christian democracy, a system which he does not in his heart wish to destroy, and defending a system that he could not bear to live under. Take that, buddy, right? In an October 1962 Life magazine, Claire warned of a global double blind if the US permitted Soviet missiles to become operational on the island of Cuba. Should America be forced into an engagement against the Soviets in other hemispheres, she argued the US would face risk at home from flanking attacks just off our southern shore, and she urged President Kennedy, should he decide to act, to prevent a Cuban-based Soviet outpost. Well, you all can read about the history of that, those horribly oppressed people in Cuba, because we didn't do what we should have done back then, in my opinion. But Claire Booth Luce rarely equivocated. She formed her positions logically, I'd say with clarity, <laughs> and expressed them on every occasion that she could, strongly, and on occasion, irreverently. Claire compared, compared the Supreme Court's uh, Roe v. Wade decision. She wrote a lengthy article about this in uh, the Human Life Review, and she wrote, the purpose of this particular article is to respond to what she saw as, quote, a curious tendency of many intellectuals to cop out on a question which is not only a profound, even agonizing concern to millions of their fellow citizens, but of extraordinary moral and political significance for the future of America, unquote. Isn't that what Krista was just talk talking about this morning? A critical issue, even back then, she could see people shying away from it because it's difficult. And she began in the article by drawing a parallel between the treat treatment of slaves and a child in utero. She called both issues multidimensional, raising religious, moral, economic, political, legal, and constitutional questions. Yet she argued the core question in both causes is scientific and rooted in biology. She said, was the Negro race, although clearly belonging to a genus mankind, nevertheless a subhuman species? 
Was the black man biologically inferior to the white man, or was he biologically his equal and consequently entitled to those rights by the Constitution given to all men? Is the child in utero a human being or a person? Or is a fetus non-human and subhuman matter? And if so, at what point in time does the fetus become a human being? Boy, we just keep talking about these things, don't we? Years and years later. Both the Supreme Court, the Taney Court in the Dred Scott decision and the Burger Court in Roe v. Wade decision, she said, studiously avoided weighing the answers of contemporary science in reaching their decision. And in doing so, they threw the issues into a political sphere and divided the nation, and we're still divided. In 1960s, it was a time of national unrest over the Vietnam War and campus riots on, on college, in colleges all over. I was in college then. Um, now, she was living in Hawaii by then, and she penned an editorial in the Hawaii Star Bulletin titled, Handling Campus Activists. Now, this was 60 years ago she was writing. Everything seems new today. But she wrote, these widespread disorders have made Americans realize that if academic order is not soon restored, the whole education process is bound to disintegrate. The universities will either have to close down or yield over to their politically oriented faculty members and the activists with the consequence they will turn into breeding grounds for young revolutionaries. Ha! We know about that, don't we? Remember, this was the 1960s. And she argued that the soft approach of appeasement adopted by university administrators only provoked more demonstrations increased in size and violence. And she lamented the consequences, the death of reason debate on campus. Cleta. She wrote, here the writer wishes to make clear that in a free society, all questions or causes, academic or political, which interest students are properly debatable questions. Civil rights, ecology, fair trials for the Chicago 7, the academic merits of ROTC training, Vietnam, disarmament, housing, these were the hot left-wing issues at the time, should be debated by students. It's not only reasonable, it's desirable they should be, it's also desirable that students should listen to speakers and lecturers and faculty members who present different sides of these questions. But recent debate is not the method by which this new left activist chose to resolve questions. Again, this was 60 years ago. Later in the article, she raises an issue that some today are raising about the violence on our campuses and in our streets. Who are the agitators behind this violence? She wrote, here one should mention a situation that deserves far more attention than it's getting. Many of the activists who appear during campus demonstrations are not enrolled students. They are organized agitators who have been sent into crowds of students to egg them onto violence. And in this case, they did, they did throw eggs more back then. She wrote this 60 years ago, and we're, we're so many of these students who were rioting and trying to shut down the schools. I went to a small girls' school in New York. They shut down the campus for a couple of days. So many of the students who led that, they're running the universities now. Claire served in the Nixon, Ford, and Reagan administrations uh, in a point of position. You see this gentleman on the right? Does anybody know who he is? Neither do I. I don't have a clue. I have looked, but it was such a pretty picture of her that I, I had to put it in. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Reagan in 1983, and we have a miniature of this medal in our headquarters, medal in our headquarters office. We're doing beautiful new exhibit cases for the new office, and it was a gift from one of our board members who is the granddaughter and namesake of Claire Booth Luce. It's her granddaughter, Claire Luce. Now, on a lighter note, we remember Claire for her quick wit and her quotable quips, since so many of them transcend time as well. She had many things to say about women, men, feminism, the battle of sexes, some of them quite po pointed. This one I like. If God had wanted us to think just with our wombs, why did he give us a brain? Now, this was, remember, this was a different era, too, and the job, a primary job of women was just to have, women, have children. Of course, that's our job still, but there's other things as well. Here's some more. I refuse the compliment that I think like a man. One either thinks or one does not. <laughs> because I am a woman, I must make unusual efforts to succeed. If I fail, no one will say she doesn't have what it takes. 
they will say women don't have what it takes. Here's one I, I didn't put up, but I'm going to read it to you. It is time to leave the question of the role of women in society up to Mother Nature, a difficult lady to fool. You have only to give women the same opportunities as men, and you will find out what is or is not in their nature. What is in women's nature to do, they will do, and you won't be able to stop them. But you will also find, and so will they, that what is not in their nature, even if they are given every opportunity, they will not do, and you won't be able to make them do it. I always think of this when somebody says, only blank percent of blank profession is women. It's because they don't want that profession. I mean, why aren't there more women in Congress? Is there any impediment that you know of to a woman running for Congress? No, not today. They don't necessarily want to. I mean, we want more conservative women to run for sure, but I always think of that quote. Um, There's nothing harder than the softness of a difference. That's good. The politicians were talking themselves red, white, and blue in the face. And then they say that women talk too much. If you worked in Congress, you know the filibuster was invented by men. <laughs> All right. Hang on here. What do we got left? I think we got a little bit left here. Ah, we put this one on your T-shirts because it really is so good. It is so very, very good. It is so true. It's hard. It's really hard to be courageous sometimes, um, but it's so important. And I can tell you honestly, ladies, most of you are way ahead of me. I, if you can believe it, was extremely shy and retiring all through high school, my early college. I did join YAF. Um, but I did not become an activist. I didn't have a passion to persuade others until I did a junior year abroad at the University of London in England. This was before Margaret Thatcher. It was still a very socialist country. Um, and I suddenly, I, I could understand intellectually the difference between socialism and freedom, but to see it, the way it brings everybody down, the way it discourages so many people, except you know for the little elite at the top. Um, and I didn't get my courage till I was in my last year of college. So for all of you that are way ahead of me, I say congratulations and, and keep it up. And then one more quote. And boy, does this work in Washington. I don't know about your town. No good deed goes unpunished. You work really hard, you do something good, or you help somebody, and they turn around and bite you. That ever happened? I love that. This was her quote. She doesn't always get credit for it. Claire Booth Luce was a brilliant woman with an innate drive to find out the why of everything. She blazed many trails for women throughout her life and did so gracefully, and neither her sex nor her circumstances would hold her back. It's why we named our center that focuses on creating the next gener generation of women leaders after her. And I hope you now feel you know a little more about Claire Booth Luce and why this Center for Conservative Women is named after her. When Claire Booth Luce died on October 9th, uh, 1987, Time Magazine utilized the writer, editor, and statesman as the preeminent Renaissance woman of the 20th century. Indeed, she was. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any questions? Any of, you, any of you ever taken a women's studies course where you've had Claire Booth Luce taught? She's not. She's just not. What a remarkable woman. It's because they don't teach about conservative women. There may be some wonderful exception I don't know about, but it's really not women's studies. It's left-wing women's studies. Um, right. I mean, if they, if they mention a woman, it's going to be like a Phyllis Shafley, God rest her soul, you know, to condescend, to mock her. <laughs> Phyllis used to go to college campuses. <laughs> she did like to tweak the lips, and she'd say, I'm only here tonight because Fred let me come. Fred was her husband. <laughs> but it just would bug the, bug the heck out of the liberals. I mean, I'm sure she and Fred discussed it, but she would just say things like that to bug them. Oh, OK. Hi. Um, so in the modern era, kind of, it seems that women on the conservative side are seeming to play into identity politics just as much as women on the left. And so they say, oh, you know, 
we deserve this opportunity because we're women. So how can we kind of model Claire Luce um, in her, she was saying like, mm -hmm. I'm capable because of who I am as a person, not because of who I am right. as a woman. Right, well I would say, don't raise the woman issue. I mean, it's apparent that we're women. Um, what you want to do is you want to work very, very hard. You want to do the very best you can. When it comes time when you ladies get out of school and you go for interviews, you need to talk not about yourself, but you need to talk about the organization or the company you're going to work for and how you want to work there to help them be more successful. Or if you're an assistant to a specific person, how you want to help that person be more successful. I mean, it's things like that. It's not because you're a woman. Do I think women need to be in most conversations? Yes, because occasionally we have insights uh, that wouldn't be there without us. But I don't, I'm not for conservative women identity politics. Um, I, don't, I don't buy that at all. You work hard, you become an expert, you learn how to motivate people, you learn how to speak, you learn how to talk about an issue that's uh, in a persuasive way like Kristen and Cleta today. Nobody cares if you're a man or a woman. I would say don't do it. Um, and you're gonna find more happiness and success in your life. Okay, my question is, how do we not ostracize ourselves from the modern feminist community and movement and all of that? Because I think that's what happens oftentimes to a lot of us here. One of the things that you can do, um, I mean, some of them just don't want to hear from you, and they'll just shut you down no matter what. But what I've found over the years that is sometimes helpful with people I have disagreements with is first talk about the things you agree on. I mean, if you're talking about other college girls, I mean, you know there's 50 things you agree on, and so you form a basis of a relationship maybe in that, if you can, and then pick an issue. Pick the issue which is most important to you. Maybe it's life. And start to explore it with somebody who says they're pro-choice. And start to explore the different parts of it. Um, and, you know, it's sort of calm and gracious debate. As I said, some of them have absolutely no interest um, they're certain they're right, and, and many times they're just totally wrong, but they don't even want to hear. They don't even want to talk. But reasonably intelligent people, used to call them good liberals, would engage in debate. I mean, that's how the universities used to be. There were different points of view, but you weren't shut down for being a conservative. And the best professors in the universities, there are some, and they may be a left-wing Marxist, but they may encourage discussion and debate on different issues instead of just shutting you down, insulting you personally, as many of them do. So, I mean, I think it's a matter of relationship building and gracious but persuasive arguments. Um, you know, feminism is a great big thing. Take an issue, take an issue, take something, get to know somebody, what their background is, where there might be some, some place you could make some progress. Talk about the things you agree on. You know, Ronald Reagan used to talk about the big tent. I think he used to say, if we agree on 80%, is that right, Cleta? If we agree on 80%, you are welcome. Now, that didn't mean that he changed his views on critical issues, but this notion that we're all going to be totally in lockstep, um, and conservatives are guilty, are just, you, you're wrong on that, get out, you know? Um, that's not really the best way to build a coalition or to win 49 states like Ronald Reagan did. Nobody had any doubt where he was on all the issues, but he had a way of, of Let's, hear, let's talk about what we agree on and, and get together on those things. Does that help? Okay. So uh, my question is just kind of about how I know feminists today, they, it's funny because their name, they, they call themselves feminists, but they hate femininity. They hate the fact that women are different from men and they just hate that we are not exactly like men, and they try to make us like that. So how can we, as conservative women, embrace our femininity mm -hmm. in the workplace environment? Mm -hmm. Well, just embrace it. <laughs> I mean, we are conservative women. We do love being women. We love men. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I love my husband. I have three sons. Men are different in some ways, and it's a wonderful thing. You know, you want a man to be big and strong and protective, and every marriage relationship operates in a different way, but it's a very natural thing for a man and a woman to be different, but to, to be together for a life and to have 
a family and to care for each other and a whole whole big life. I mean, the, a lot of the feminists, and I'm talking about radical feminists, not, there are some conservative women that call themselves equity feminists. Uh, no, it's, a, it's equity, what are the two kinds? Uh, well, Christina Huff Summers, who speaks for, she calls herself feminist, she wants to, Recovered the word, and I, you know I get that. I understand. I don't agree, but uh, I, I it's, it's like a word. I, you know, when I was in college, they were taking off their bras, no joke, going to public places and burning them. And this is what feminism was. Oh, I would never want to be called a feminist, but I understand the notion. They snatched the word. The original suffragettes, they were they were feminists. They were for equal treatment under the law for men and women so that we would be treated equally, which you know the right to vote and in custody and divorce. There, sh there should be equal treatment, but this, this left-wing contingent took feminism, and then it was all about right to life. No, they were no good. You had to have abortions anytime, anywhere, any place. And then they went into all the uh, homosexual aspects, and then you had to, you couldn't just be tolerant. You had to applaud and say, isn't this wonderful? And it just went way, 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 and now, you know, the... There's no reason a grown man shouldn't come into the restroom with your six-year-old daughter if he feels like a woman that day. I mean, it's just totally, it's gone totally crazy. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, Taylor, but the truth is <laughs> we can be conservative and women and successful and feminine and try to bring people over when we can. Um, if they're just adamant, um, Sometimes if you don't even use the word conservative and you're in a setting, of course, you know, if you're a campus leader, everybody knows who you are, but you just talk about individual issues. Um, the radical feminist movement, uh, I remember when I went, when I started this issue, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 years ago, and I went over to now, I just wanted to see, national organization firm, what do they have? And I went into the office and there were <clears throat> all these awful looking women and they had this, <laughs> they did sorry, that's lookism. Oh, that's not allowed, right? Lookism, but I'm thinking this is how you come to work. They had this giant table and um, two-thirds of it were about little issue papers and stuff on, on abortion and, and homosexuality. And back then it was a little bit more limited. And then there were a couple of other papers about, you know, affirmative action and socialism and stuff like that. But the whole movement has really gone way, 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 way left. Um, Margie's nodding yes, right? Well, I, I want to add one thing. Um, I think that what you'll find is that a lot of the women who are the radical feminists are deeply unhappy <laughs> and deeply unappealing because, sorry, because they're, they're profoundly unhappy. I think happy people, I think we are happy warriors. I think conservative women, who em we embrace our femininity, we're delighted to be women, we know we're different, it's great, viva la difference, as they say. And, and I think that attracts people because you're emanating the fact that you're happy and comfortable and loving and, and you are welcoming to other people and you're encouraging. I think that Living it is the best thing, the best way to sort of demonstrate that difference. I think the more you can sort of see how unhappy and 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 um, sort of miserable and angry the the radical feminists are, the the more just everyday women will say, well, "I don't want that. I want this." Here goes Kate.
And, and, you know, the truth is that... So, <laughs> Hello. Just know... Just know that when... <laughs> but just remember... Just remember that when Gloria Steinem got married, she went to the, uh, the chief of chief. the Cherokee tribe, and who was really a Cherokee, not a Focahontas, but, um, <laughs> whose name was, now this is the person who married, presided over the marriage of Gloria Steinem. Her name was Wilma Mankiller. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Never forget that part. And the other thing is about some of the leading feminists. When uh, There was this... Andrea Dworkin, have any of you heard of her? Yeah. She, um, well, one of her most famous statements is that any sexual relationship between a man and a woman is rape. Okay. But she, she had some dreadful experiences, some assaults and rapes and stuff. And I mean, I'm not making an excuse for it. I'm just saying, you know, somebody said, why are they this way? Well, some of them, it's the families, it's their life experiences, but they're just wrong. We know they're just wrong. I mean, most of us, want to marry and have families. Not everybody, and that's, that's not for my mother. used to say the only thing worse than not being married is being unhappily married, and she had that right. But um, uh, most of us admire, like, respect men. We want to be partners with men for our life, and there's things that we do differently and things we do the same. But you are strong, smart, conservative women, and you are going to have a wonderful life of success. If you work hard, if you're cheerful, if you stick with your principles, and uh, I wish you all the very best of everything. God bless you.